You are worthy of being in this profession. You are worthy of representing that client. You are worthy of taking that high profile case. Welcome to the season one finale of Lawher. Don't question that. Step in there and be yourself, your worthy self. You don't have to pretend to be somebody that you want to emulate. You don't have to pretend to be male in the courtroom. That that authenticity is so much more persuasive than any tool you could learn from any seminar. When we started the show just 50 weeks ago, only 19% of managing partners in U.S. law firms were female. And while the number of women entering law school continues to rise, these numbers are not reflected at the partner level. To help bridge that gap, we continue to create spaces where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal fields. I am Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the digital agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is LawHer. As this season comes to a close and we look back at some of the most impactful conversations, I would like to thank every attorney, legal professional, and all-around badasses who shared with us their hard-earned wisdoms, struggles, and dreams, whose stories serve as a constant reminder that we are all capable, worthy, and stronger together. And a very special shout out to my boss, Chris Dreyer, CEO at Rankings, for his unwavering support. Sarah Williams found her authentic voice in trial advocacy, and it shows. She has recovered over 15 million for her clients. And though she has worked with some of the largest and most well-funded personal injury firms in the nation, she sees social media as the great equalizer for female attorneys. It's an interesting concept, but I think philosophically, that digital marketing and and being able to market the way you can now is the great equalizer. I think it is the thing, and this is why I'm passionate about speaking about it to, to women and people of color. To me, it removed the barrier to entry. I don't need to be a member of your country club. I don't need to be a member of the boys club, right? I can go directly to the source myself for an inexpensive entry fee. You know, billboards are expensive. TV can be expensive, especially if you're in a market like ours where it's really competitive. But Facebook and Instagram, you know, those ads, even a new lawyer starting out can have some sort of budget set aside for that. And so, yes, it definitely has changed my perspective because if an Arab man with the last name Shannara in the state of Alabama can dominate marketing the way that he does, right? To me, if that's not a clear sign that like doing these things removes the barriers to entry, I don't know what is. You're absolutely right. I love what you said. Uh, It's an equalizer, is an absolute equalizer. And as things get more and more competitive, the pandemic has just driven everybody online. Legal was already extremely competitive, but I think you're right to... Promote yourself because I do think that people probably more than ever are looking to connect with a person and not just a a brand or a a firm. Here's how I, I know in my heart that it is the removal of the barrier to entry. 
all of the bar right organizations across the country are trying to figure out how do we slow this down? How do we control the folks who are marketing digitally? And that is because those organizations are primarily being run by the folks who either don't market, who have had to rely on their networks, who, who have relied on their family connections, right? And they are scared. There's only so much they can do, right? At the end of the day, it's going to, change is going to come. You can you can fight it. You can try to change the rules to, to legislate around it, but it's going to happen. You know, you cannot close us out of the marketplace. Lawyers are just like any other business. And so I think that to me is the clearest sign that it's effective. When folks have to start changing the rules, that's a clear sign that that it is effective and effective for people who were typically marginalized. If you could change one thing about your industry, what would it be? The thing that frustrates me the most about the legal industry is its inability to innovate quickly. Like, I was just having this conversation with a professor at Cumberland that, like, as fast as the world is moving, especially here in this state, but I feel like I get the sense that it's in a lot of state, other states too. The legal industry just doesn't seem to be moving at the same pace. Like, the pandemic, right, should have pushed us into innovation. We had to learn to adapt. We had to take depositions by Zoom. People are trying cases by Zoom. But it's weird. It's like as soon as, you know, certain lockdowns were lifted, it's like people forgot. Like you spent all this money on this equipment and now you're like demanding to be in person. And, it's just, and, and, and here we are back with a spike, you know, half of our office is out. I had a status conference the other day. Every single lawyer was either coming out of quarantine or was in quarantine, but you still have judges who refuse to have status conferences via Zoom and judges who refuse to have hearings via Zoom and lawyers who refuse to take depositions via Zoom and law firms that don't allow parents to have flexibility in their work schedules. You know, these kids are being sent home right and left and daycares are being shut down. And it's like, we learned, like, we can survive. It's so bizarre to me. Like, we literally spent a year and we learned we could survive in doing this thing. And then we come into this year and we're like, all right, back to normal. It's just, that is, so that's the thing that frustrates me the most about the legal industry, because I think that is what hurts women. Because we right now are the ones who are carrying the bulk of the load when it comes to dealing with this pandemic. I think it's a control issue. I think that um, it's a generational issue. I think it's a control issue. I will tell you, I am very, very, very worried about like every woman in my life because I feel like we are all just like hanging on a thread. Like we're one shutdown away from just calling it, you know? And I think that part of that for women lawyers is the law firms and the industry's refusal to just get with it. Despite the industry's desire to slow things down, up-and-coming female attorneys are full steam ahead. Reb Maisel has over a million followers on TikTok. On the surface, it might seem like she only reads public depositions, but this account has provided a space for all legal professionals to come together, feel seen, and find a joy even if it's in life's little absurdities. 
hundreds of thousands of comments and DMs and and views from so many attorneys and and paralegals and legal assistants and law clerks and staff that say, oh my God, thank you. Like I have so many, you know, people emailing me submissions that are hilarious. And then so, but, but, you know, so many more non-attorneys and people who aren't in this field who genuinely send me the most heartfelt kindest messages about how these are, you know, hilarious and the hilarity is getting them through a bad day or how they're like, I only downloaded this app so that I could see these right when they're posted. And I just am extremely fortunate to be able to have a vehicle unintentionally, you know, accidentally to just make people laugh and have a good time and also understand that not everything in court is just like a true crime, you know, docu-series podcast, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy. A lot of it is mundane, menial stuff. I'm preaching to the choir here, <laughs> but so much goes on that either, you know, some days it it restores your faith in humanity because some people are genuinely hilarious and sometimes it breaks it down a little, but I like not knowing what day you're going to get. Making the legal industry more inclusive that's a thing that needs to happen. But also kind of what you're talking about, just breaking a mold of what people think an attorney, particularly a female attorney, is supposed to act and look like a bob. Humor, I think, is often undervalued in like professional positions. (laughs) You're serious. You're a lawyer. And so when other people see like, oh, that person has a sense of humor. They're funny. You're talking about very tense situations. Being able to make someone smile during something like that is totally undervalued. Absolutely. And I am a very, very loud proponent of being a person and being an attorney and attorneys who've practiced for a long time and who have achieved, you know, varying levels of success, I think will echo that will say that showing their clients that they are a person, that they are someone who who can be empathetic and who can understand and who can listen and who can acknowledge the differences in their upbringing, their background from their clients or understand and acknowledge that even though they've done this for 20 years and they have 20 years of experience, they can absolutely learn from someone who is just now entering the field who might have a bright, fresh new take on this area of law, on this burden shifting analysis that they might not have have thought of previously. Like I'm going to pave my way no matter what, it's going to be fine. And you meet along the way in law school, in your in practice, so many women who who are like you, who who are of varying ages and races and degrees and and backgrounds and yes. experience levels. And so you think, oh, oh, that's fine. But for people who are thinking about law school and for people who aren't yet decided or for or for young girls, young teenagers who want to see someone other than just legally blonde in pop culture who they can look up to, I didn't realize until now how open of a space there was to be filled by women who are in this field, who have a voice, who are of varying, you know, personalities and education levels and practice levels and practice areas. Because even if I'm just sitting on TikTok talking about something completely irrelevant to the law or just talking about my day or telling jokes, whatever, I've had hundreds, if not thousands of DMs from women and teenagers and girls that literally that make me sob where they just say i'm just so happy that i can be a person i'm so happy that i can be you're still a lawyer that's so cool that blows my mind 
The old guard has paved the way for women in the legal field, serving as shining examples of how far women can go when we band together. Lisa Bloom has always been a community builder, rallying like-minded women and allies around the fight for justice. I always knew that it was my job to contribute and to make a difference, although I was resistant to going to law school. So when I was in college, I volunteered at a battered women's shelter. I worked with the abused children. I also volunteered in a homeless shelter, feeding homeless people. And I did that in law school as well. And I really thought about becoming a therapist or a social worker and helping people that way. But my mom convinced me to go to law school. Off I went and, you know, the rest is history. (laughs) To fight the way that you fight requires unbridled courage. Was courage a learned behavior for you? It does take a lot of courage. And I tell my clients who really are are more courageous than I, because it's personal for them. You know, I signed up for this. I always remember that they did not, things happened to them. And then they decided I have to stand up, even though I'd really don't want to, even though I'd rather be a model or a secretary or a security guard, or, I mean, these are the kinds of people I represent. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be like a civil rights activist. So for courage, you know, I, I think a lot of times you just have to fake it. And if you're faking it and you're charging forward and doing what needs to be done, who cares whether you really feel courageous or not? You just got to take care of business and you got to take care of yourself. I have people coming after me all the time, threatening me, suing me, threatening to sue me. And like, I just have to keep going because I believe in what I do. You've used your platform to outline the injustice that was done in the Zimmerman trial and the murder of Trayvon Martin in a book entitled Suspicion Nation, the inside story of the Trayvon Martin injustice and why we continue to repeat it. You stated that the trial was unjust and racist and were disturbed that so few non-Black people read the book or even seemed to care about racism. How can attorneys fight against a racially biased system when it feels like they're on their own? I think we have seen a little bit of improvement with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, really uh, becoming so giant in 2020 and millions of people in the streets. And we did see more white people particularly getting involved. And that was heartening to me. We're now seeing, I think, a backlash. And there's a lot of right wing backlash to Black Lives Matter and trying to paint the whole movement like it was violent. And, you know, it's all about little microaggressions. And and that's really not what it's about. Uh, It's about very fundamental problems in our system. So how can attorneys do more? I mean, first of all, educate yourself about these issues. I think as a white person, you may have certain assumptions and, you know, don't assume that your life experience is the same as everybody else's. I mean, I've literally heard white people say like, well, you know, I never experienced racism. I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of great books to read. You can read mine, but there's a lot of wonderful other books to read, YouTube videos, documentaries, and really educate yourself and then consider what you can do in your practice. Can you take on a pro bono case, for example? I just took on a case uh, yesterday of uh, an African-American man called the N-word a couple of times in his workplace. We see a lot of that. This is a case that, you know, it's probably not a particularly high value case, but it's I think it's important. And we wanted to stand up for him and fight for him. And if it ends up being a pro bono case, you know, so be it. And there's a lot of need out there. And I think once you educate yourself and you open yourself up to doing the work and helping people, you're going to be rewarded. 
Suffering may be an immutable fact of life, but we certainly do not have to do it alone. And how we respond to that adversity is a choice all our own. Asking for help when we are at our most vulnerable can be one of the hardest things to do. But as Melissa Lamour found out, the pillars that propped her up in her time of need were right in front of her all along. Not only did going through cancer help me really connect with those who were helping, it solidified the community that I had within this industry. Yes. You know, I, mm-hmm. as an event planner, right, as somebody whose literal job is in hospitality and making sure that I'm predicting everybody's needs, my job has been in service. My profession has been in service. My business has been in service My really my entire life. And this was the first time that I was knocked down and I couldn't be there for anybody, right? And as a true extrovert, I really struggled with that mm-hmm. because what I most was people, right? And so I kind of reached, I reached out to my community and the community and really the community within the industry really reached out to me. I mean, I'm not kidding. Daily, I had something showing up at my door, text messages, calls, FaceTimes, emails. I mean, the the amount of outreach that I received from the community within this industry was incredible, Right. That makes me really happy so here. It really flipped the script for me. Mm-hmm. Right. It it really allowed it allowed me to see for the first time really how my relationship with our clients, with my colleagues, you know, with my friends within the industry, that those, none of those things were dependent on what I can do for them and what I can produce for them and what I can create or how I can galvanize people for them. It really was about an authentic relationship and, you know, authenticity is my core value. And so when I got that outreach of love and compassion and understanding and just love and support, it was overwhelming. I loved to hear that you reached out so that you recognized this was, like you said, it flipped the script for you. You were finding yourself in a place you hadn't been before. And you reached out like that first step, you took it, which can be very intimidating and very scary for people when they're feeling very vulnerable, but you did it. And then, you know, you got it back tenfold, a hundredfold. It's so true. I work with cancer survivors now and those who are battling cancer now. And I work just sort of as a, as a coach or as a mentor, as um, like a guide of sorts uh, through Stanford, actually. And I Hmm. tell them constantly, I mean, as a true extrovert, that's what works for me. Right. I took my in case of emergency group text Mm -hmm. and I asked them to I gave them my chemo schedule. I asked them to show up for me to pick a date and and show up for me. And I turned every chemo into a gathering. Right. Something I almost looked forward to because, you know, the days prior to chemo is traumatic. There's no other way to put it. And so I created an environment that made me excited and that gave me energy, truly fundamentally gave me energy. You know, I had a shave day party Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you out of, um, out of the 12 people that came to shave day, nine of them were in the industry. So tell us more about the league. So the league is, oh my gosh, the league is an incredible network and community of women in the industry. Uh, The League is us creating a platform of what sort of Carson and I had created just amongst ourselves, right? Mm. Carson and I working in different parts of the industry, 
had this incredible network of women that she and I together were friends with that was just the most empowering, invigorating, energetic, and energizing group of women. I mean, you could honestly ever imagine. And she and I were talking one day and she actually reached out to me and said, you know, it would be great if there was a women's organization that was designed for all of us, right? I mean, there are so many women's organizations that are very particularly designed to support certain sectors of the industry, which are all incredibly essential and beneficial uh, for you know those in that um, particular sector of the industry, right? But this is an organization that's designed for the whole woman, for their personal growth, for their professional growth, for their um, independent, like financial uh, management skills, and for you know their why, right? So it's designed for the whole woman, really solely. And then by supporting the whole woman, you support them in whatever role they play in the industry. As more women enter the legal space, the ways in which we can collaborate shift and take new forms. Lauren Wood, founder of the annual Women in Trial Travel Summit, has created something entirely new by blending two historically male-dominated industries, travel and law. I love being a trial lawyer, but I also just, I mean, I love travel and I love the, the blog aspect of it too. And so it was really, the thought process was to combine those two things. I actually did a small group trip to Bali in March of 2020. And because of just my professional connections and you know my, my friend base, a lot of them are women lawyers. And nearly all of the people who signed up for this small group trip, there were 10 plus me, so 11 total, were all women lawyers. And it's just... From there, it sort of spiraled out of control. We Then we decided to get it certified for MCLE credit. And it actually wasn't until after the event that I got the word from the state bar that they had approved it. And so then I thought, hmm, well, if I can get MCLE approval for an 11-person group in Bali, I'm sure I could put together an actual conference and get it certified for MCLE. Hopefully not, I would. And then it, like everything else, it just sort of builds on itself. And so that was the impetus is a much larger endeavor, obviously. But the thought of getting a group of women lawyers in a beautiful place like Mexico, where we can learn from one another and also just enjoy some time away from the office, I, that, that to me is such a wonderful thing. Showing up unapologetically allows you to tap into the raw strength of your authentic self. As you pour your heart and soul into your career and clients, Jeannie Harrison explains what it takes to reach the top of your game and stay there. That consistency of reaching the top and then staying at the top is a function of my own internal drive to be the best that I can be on a daily basis. And so nobody puts those standards on me or has that, those expectations of me. I have them of myself. 
And my expectation is not to get X award or Y award. It's to give 110% on every single thing I do in every given day and every week and every month and every year. My recommendation to everyone is have your own high standards and strive to meet them on a daily basis. It's easier to give your all 110% when you're taking it serious. So I love that. You are a very fierce advocate. The LA Times had this to say about your tenacity. When you see her in a fight with a bear, worry about the bear. Have you always been a fighter? I do think that grit and the tenacity is something that becomes part of one's personality early on in life. And maybe, you know, there's some nature, the grit really comes from being exposed to adversity and overcoming it, having the courage. Everything's scary. A lot of things out there are scary. Standing up to, you know, an abusive parent is scary. Going into court and trying a case is scary. So all of these things are scary, right? But what it takes is courage to overcome the fear. That's where you won't have courage unless you have fear. These things go hand in hand. So the question is, does one choose courage instead of backing down? And that's something that you will never exhibit unless you're exposed to adversity and things that scare you and you nonetheless step into them. Phoebe Fell has carved out a name for herself as a dogged trial attorney while tapping into kindness and compassion. As the number of women entering the legal field continues to grow, the percentages of women at the top remain staggeringly low. There is a huge gap and we do need to close it. That gap gets even wider when you look at women who are more like five to seven years of practice. I think what we need to do is we need to have more women mentoring women. When I was a young lawyer, I didn't have anybody to look up to and say, okay, this is what my life can be like. This is what my career can be like, because I was looking at men who were in very different circumstances than me. The other thing we can do as women is support each other through the hard times. I mean, there are so many women who think that in order to compete in this male dominated profession, we need to be perfect. We need to have perfect lives. We need to have lives that just give us a clear path to doing our job and only our job. And that's just not reality. When I look at the women who have really made it to the top of the field, the ones who have been practicing and are, you know, up there in the the highest organizations, getting the biggest verdicts, they're women who went through struggle, but they're women who kept getting up. And I think that needs to be the message to young women, whatever you're facing, whether it's issues with kids, divorce infidelity, illness, there is a path through if you want to keep going in this profession. I do feel like women often take the burden on themselves. I can do it myself. I don't need help. And so they don't look for help from other women. And then it's not then as instinctual to then reach out to other people, you know? So I do think that relying on others, other women can impact that. Is there another role that you think that like community can play? I think, you know, our community tends to have this impression that it's not happening, right? I, I, there are so many people who have made it 
who I respect. And because it doesn't impact them in their circle, they don't see it. So I think as a community, we really need to open our eyes to the fact that, yes, it still exists. Why aren't we hearing about it? Because women aren't complaining about it. Mm -hmm. Why aren't women complaining about it? Because women get punished for complaining about it. So it's our job, especially the those of us, male and female, who have made it to the tops of our profession to open our eyes, to recognize it's happening, to call people out and to hold opportunities out to both sexes on an equal basis. Not just that group of friends that you go to the bar with all the time that happens to be the same gender as you, but to actually say, okay, stepping outside of my small circle, which is so biased because I like the people who are like me, right? Who deserves an opportunity? Who really is the best person for this case? Yes. A lot of the reason we started this podcast was because women were not getting the same amount of sort of attention, opportunity, recognition that their male counterparts were. But then when I started booking guests and started looking around, there was no shortage of very successful, powerful, prominent women who are just at the absolute top of their field, they're not being as paid attention to. I think you're that first thing that you said just about paying attention and looking around and seeing the people who are already doing it. So yes. What lessons do you wish all female lawyers knew right now or young lawyers entering into the field? Yeah. I think the number one lesson I wish I could teach everyone is be yourself. I mean, you are worthy of being in this profession. You are worthy of representing that client. You are worthy of taking that high profile case. Don't question that. Step in there and be yourself, your worthy self. You don't have to pretend to be somebody that you want to emulate. You don't have to pretend to be male in the courtroom. That that authenticity is so much more persuasive than any tool you could learn from any seminar. Women are leaving big law and established fields left and right to start their own practice. While there may never be a perfect time, every now and then, the circumstances feel just right. Candace Klein explains how she seized an opportunity to open her firm and live out the work-life integration she truly desired. The pandemic came at a time where I was, I have, I have a son, he's nine years old, and I was struggling with, you know, wanting to be home and wanting to be a stay-at-home mom, but loving my career and, you know, and really um, wanting to try cases. And so COVID kind of came at a at a crazy time for me that it was so nice to have the opportunity to be home with my son. And then it just felt like the natural progression to kind of start our own creative firm and to do all the things that we wanted to do, have the time to work with the clients and to focus on cases that we could just give all our our all to, you know, and have clients that we could understand, you know, their story and learn about them and be creative with them. And it just was, you know, timing. (laughs) You mentioned that you never want to choose between being a lawyer and a mother. You successfully do both. For those considering motherhood or those who are already moms, is the work-life balance a myth? 
I will quote my mother who always says, you can have balance. You just may not have balance (laughs) at all times. It is definitely, I don't want to use the word difficult because, you know, life can be difficult. So I don't want to say it's difficult to be a mom and a lawyer. I think that you have to create kind of boundaries in your own life and then try to, you know, to try to work within those boundaries. So if there are certain things that are extremely important that I know that I want to be part of with my son's, you know, life, I will make sure that I am part of those things. For instance, making lunches or making breakfast. Like, I don't care where I'm at. If I'm in trial, if I'm not, I enjoy making my son's lunch for school. And so I, I will wake up early or, you know, do whatever it is because I like that creative part of making lunches and you know the color and the way that I organize it and putting in notes. That's just something that's important to me. So I could wake up, you know, at, at three in the morning, prepare for trial, and then make sure that I always get his lunch done because that's something that is important to me. But I think it is hard, you know, it's hard, especially being a trial lawyer because it consumes so much time. It's not only being in trial during trial hours, but then it's also preparing for trial. And so obviously that takes away from from family time. But I'm I'm lucky that I have a, you know, a supportive husband who when I'm not there, he's there for my son. And so we've never had a nanny. People think we're crazy. You know, I hear all the time, like, why don't you have a nanny or why don't you do this? And we just make it work because that's what was important to us. You know, we, we had my son older. We were, and so it was very important to me to be a hands-on mom. So we just make it work. Opening a firm is hard and scary and can be incredibly stressful, particularly if you are subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that says you have to be the hardest working in the room to be successful. To be on your A-game, Allison Williams learned the hard way that you need to put yourself first, and that despite the challenges, opening a practice is well worth the reward. So there's so many benefits to going out on your own, right? It's not for everyone, so I will say that. But, you know, there's, there's a certain fire that a lot of lawyers have inside of them that they're not even aware of until they become a business owner, right? When you have the ability to not just have the freedom from a boss, because to be clear, I worked at three great law firms and at least the managing attorney, the one who hired me, the one that I work most closely with, I still have great relationships with all of them. I loved working for them. It was never a matter of me wanting to escape a job. And I always was highly productive. So I got a lot of freedom, right? But when you are in your own business, the freedom then becomes something that you can really visualize as how you want your life to be so that you can create a business that supports your life. So that might mean you want at a certain stage time to be able to cut out in the middle of the day to go to things at your children's school, or you might want to entertain artistic passions that you have. So you want to be able to take certain weeks off to be able to go paint or go write or go be in a commune, right? There are certain elements of the business that you have a lot more say over. So you get to start directing who you help. Who are the people that you most enjoy working with? What is it that you want to create with your law firm? Do you want to just practice law as a way of making money? Or is there something bigger than it to that? And by the way, there's no judgment if there isn't something bigger, right? There are some people that practicing law is a job, right? And they want that job to be highly financially successful so that they can do something else. But if you don't own a business that is effective at producing revenue without you, 
just as you can't when you are working a job, you have to produce the labor in order to justify your compensation, you're not going to be able to get to that something else. And I think that something else is really critically important. It's really become even more important during the pandemic as people have really had to stop and pause and think about how much time do I want to be spending at my home with my family uh, in my in my interests? How much time do I want to give over to a career that may or may not serve me? And as we tap into that more, creating your own business really allows you to have space to create that for yourself. Now, a lot of people don't actually create that for themselves because they see having a law firm is just a job with my name on it, right? That's how they run it, right? So they now hold themselves accountable to billing a lot of hours instead of being held accountable by someone else. But if you really conceptualize it the right way, a business is a gateway to creating a dream life. And it really does make people better citizens. It makes them better for their families, better for their friends, better for themselves. And I'm very much committed to helping my clients achieve that. Once the courageous leap is taken to open a firm, asking for help and guidance is crucial for success. Learn from those who've come before you. Be willing to delegate and let go so that your firm can grow. Jennifer Gore is at the helm of one of the fastest growing firms in the nation with no plans of slowing down. The average law firm in the United States is growing at like less than 10% annually. Yeah. So like, I don't know whether I'm really like a star or we're just like measuring (laughs) against a very slow moving industry because I mean, a lot of what we've done to grow has been out of absolute necessity. Mm. For example, this gives give you an example. You know, we have an intake team. We have wonderful, lovely people that work on our intake team. And when we were smaller, we only had one intake person. Can you imagine how many hours they had to work to cover all the shifts of a 24 hour, seven day a week business where you get calls all throughout the day? So I kept telling everyone, we are not going to be able to keep intake people if we only have one intake person. And we were seeing that, you know, people would get burned out. So I was like, what would it take for us to support three or four intake people? And a lot of why we've wanted to grow is just because we can create better jobs for people and we can create more sustainability in the law firm when the number of the person in that department is not one. You know, you see so many law firms where they have one person doing one thing and one person doing another thing, and then they lose that person and the law firm implodes. Yes. What other sort of like systems and processes did you put in place to help kind of scale and keep up with the growth? Well, you know, at one point we only had one pod and then you would get a client and we're unhappy. Maybe, you know, not everyone's a fit for everyone. So I'm like, I can't own a law firm that has one option. You know, we need multiple different options for our clients, you know? And so we have intake software, we have case management software, we have ways to text our clients, we have ways to have them sign digital documents. We use a lot of technology Mm -hmm. because that's the way the world is going. I think that probably does play a role in being able to grow so rapidly is the adoption of technology, where I do think that sort of traditional law firms might be hesitant to do that and kind of change things up. I mean, our clients are 
not just comparing us to other law firms. They are comparing us to their consumer experiences across a broad range of services. And if they can get a pizza by pressing a button in five minutes, you know, and then you want them to come in and sign a document with their blood and sweat and tears 25 miles away, you're losing people. Taking all that she has learned over the years, Jennifer wants to help others do the same. She explains how she got started as a business coach for women. What started happening was a lot of, you know, people started asking me to help them here and there. And, you know, I'm so passionate about business and having more women owning companies and growing multi-million dollar companies. There was a statistic from the 2018 American Express report, which basically said that the number of women-owned businesses in the United States that had revenue of 100,000 or less, guess the percentage. I'm afraid to. <laughs> 100,000 or less is the category. What do you think the, the percentage is? 80%. 80%? 100K or less. 100K or less. Okay. And then there was a, there was another statistic that said the the percent of of businesses that are owned by women this is in 2018 that do a million dollars or more. Yes, that's where the low 11. It's 1.7. Oh. <laughs> so 1% of women own businesses that are doing more than a million. Correct. Wow. And that includes lawyers, that includes all business, that's every type of business. But I really found that number so like hard to wrap my mind around because I own a law firm that's a multi-million dollar law firm. So then I'm like, okay, I'm in a 1%. Actually, I'm probably in that half percent because they're just saying minimum of a million. And then I'm thinking to myself, how many employees can you employ with a million dollars of revenue, it's it's not a lot. No. I mean, what can you do with a hundred K? You know, these are really just kind of like side hustles. Yeah. And they're not sustainable, meaning you can't go off grid and have a three month maternity leave like I did because there's no one there to run the law firm when you're gone. So I started thinking about what kind of experience are these women giving themselves in owning a business, quote unquote. If you don't own a, a business that has employees, and they said the average number of employees that these women's businesses had was like half of an employee. That experience, like experience of like doing everything all on your own and having no support and no leadership. And that is a very like draining experience. And as a business owner, as a lawyer, you do that for a period of time till you can get the leverage to start hiring people. But that level is like unsustainable to do for years and years and years. I come across a ton of statistics, but that one is jarring to me. And like you said, that's a side hustle. That's not necessarily a business. And yes, that it is not sustainable. Yeah. So what would our country look like? What would a lot of things look like if there was more women that owned multi-million dollar companies, let alone multi-million dollar law firms? To all of the women who have tuned in and continue to make their corner of the world a little brighter, thank you. And I would love to hear from you as we plan our next season. Please reach out to our Instagram. Mm-hmm.
And you have been listening to Lawher with me, Sonia Palmer. Please share this episode with the trailblazers in your life so we may continue to watch our community grow. And I will see you next time on Lawher, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field. Thank you.